This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope at Room Now, um, reporting on the virtual ACR 2020. Uh, welcome to Washington or wherever we all happen to be. So I'd like to talk about number 1825, and that's looking at risk factors for anti-malarial retinopathy. So between ULAR and ACR, there have been a lot of abstracts looking at the safety of anti-malarials, including not prolonging the QT interval, but also in looking at the safety of anti-malarials um, with respect to retinopathy. Um, there are new uh, guidelines over the last few years that we should dose five milligrams per kilogram per day of actual body weight or less of hydroxychloroquine to decrease retinal toxicity. So this study, um, and I am one of the authors on it, so true disclosures, we wanted to look at retinal toxicity and to find would it be different in SLE versus other treatments such as rheumatoid arthritis, adjusting for confounders? Um, how common is it? And is there a dose or a time response? So the first thing was, um, it does appear that comparing other groups of patients that lupus has more retinal toxicity. Maybe it's adherence, maybe it is because we use it for longer, but when we adjusted for duration of use and dosing and body weight, we still found this to be the case. The next thing we want to look at was, is there a time frame? So some guidelines recommend that you don't do your eye exams until five years and beyond. In Canada, we tend to do annual retinal eye exams with visual field and also often a retinal photograph or um, a, a Q, uh, CT of the back of the eye. What was found was that there was virtually no proven retinal toxicity before five years. So I think that that is still a safe dose. The final thing that we found was that confirmed or suspected dose um, retinal toxicity was not necessarily increasing with time or dose. Um, there was a hint, but when we adjusted, it really didn't come out. So there's probably a threshold above five years where some uh, retina are at higher risk than others. The final thing, and this has changed my practice, is that the patients using chloroquine instead of hydroxychloroquine routinely dosing at 250 milligrams once a day had the highest retinal toxicity and it was very sobering and uh, fortunately uh, while we were doing this study we there was a shortage of chloroquine in Canada it's on permanent back order and that's even before the COVID-19 thought of using chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. Therefore, I did change all my patients from chloroquine to hydroxychloroquine and if their rash, it was often cutaneous lupus features, if the rash was worse, I actually would end up uh, using other background immune suppression. So I will not use chloroquine long-term anymore in any of my patients. Uh, thanks for listening. This is At Room Now and enjoy the rest of ACR 2020. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Jeff Curtis at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I'm missing you and others in person at the ACR Convergence meeting that's now being held virtual, but I did want to share something with you that caught my eye. 
It's late-breaking abstract L08. It's the results of the FAST trial that compared the cardiovascular safety of febuxostat versus allopurinol for the treatment of gout. As you're probably well aware, the CARES safety trial reported in 2018 in the New England Journal that the cardiovascular safety of febuxostat for its primary outcome was non-inferior to allopurinol. That's the good news. The somewhat concerning news was that two key secondary outcomes that were pre-specified, cardiovascular mortality as well as all-cause mortality, had a 34% and a 22% respectively significant increase compared to allopurinol. The other methods issue that was also a, a cause for concern was is that the dropout rate in the CARES trial was very, very high. It was close to 50%, which for a safety trial, some might consider rather unacceptable. So that's where things stood until the late breaker reported today. Today, we, we've learned the results of the FAST trial, a pretty equally sized trial of more than 6,000 individuals and the trial was enriched for those with cardiovascular risk factors. Median follow-up was approximately four years, much like the CARES trial. The event rates were approximately two per 100 patient years, and the FAST trial reported that febuxostat cardiovascular event rates were numerically lower and statistically non-inferior compared to allopurinol. This is quite a contrast with the prior CARES trial. The study was conducted in the UK and other parts of Europe and was conducted under the aegis of the University of Dundee. It was pharmaceutical funded, but according to the authors, the pharmaceutical company that was the sponsor didn't have direct involvement in the conduct or the execution of the trial, which might give some people additional reassurance about the rigor and the independence of the investigators that ran the trial. So bottom line, I think we have a new trial, very large, and was randomized, controlled, open label with regard to treatment, but blinded with respect to endpoint assessment, which I think is quite consistent with the notion of a large pragmatic trial that I think gives us a very different answer than what we've had heretofore. Namely, febuxostat is probably on equal cardiovascular footing from a safety perspective compared to allopurinol. And I think that gives me and probably most clinicians much more reassurance that we haven't had up to, up to this point that febuxostat won't put people in harm's way with respect to the safety profile and is a very reasonable treatment option for gout, not just to control their gout, but also from a safety perspective, it doesn't have an adverse event profile that's any worse than allopurinol. Thanks for your interest. Hi everyone, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now and I'm here with good friend and past ACR president and rheumatologist par excellence, Dr. Stanley Cohen. How are you, Stan? Great, Jack, thanks for having me. Yeah, I wanted to bring Stan on because he had a really great presentation um, this week at ACR where he was talking about comorbidities and Stan, you were asked to talk about liver disease and RA. Now, I, no one really thinks of liver disease and RA but it happens all the time. What was your take as you set out to talk about this? Well, this was a, a session on difficult RA cases, and uh, you know, they, my task was looking at the RA and, uh, and the liver diseases. And as you know, in clinic, both of us deal a lot with the folks who have metabolic syndrome, obese, with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It's probably one of the most common dilemmas we have about which therapies to choose. And 
or later this morning, we're going to hear about the new ACR recommendations for pharmacologic treatment. And this will be addressed there again. Uh, we frequently deal with issues of transaminitis related to our therapies, whether it be handsets or whether it be methotrexate, flutamide, or, uh, or even our biologics or targeted synthetic DMARDs. Uh, we rarely see uh, infectious uh, diseases such as CMV, which can affect the liver. Uh, I've had a few couple cases of amoebic abscesses and so forth. Um, and then we have the autoimmune syndromes, which rarely occur in RA, like primary sclerosis and cholangitis, primary biliary cholangitis that can be seen. Uh, in North America, we are infrequently uh, have to deal with patients who have been exposed in the past to hepatitis B. It's a real big problem worldwide, and there's a big problem with reactivation of hepatitis being patients who receive immunomodulators. So I presented a case of actually one of my associates, uh, who was a lady who came with active rheumatoid arthritis and was found to be hepatitis B uh, surface antigen uh, positive and hepatitis core antibody positive without hepatitis B surface antibody. Uh, she had very low levels of hepatitis B viral DNA. And as per recommendations from the ACR recommendation 2015, we patient was appropriately sent to a hepatologist who evaluated her with other serologies such as hepatitis B E antigen, which was negative, the E antibody was positive. And so this is a chronic hepatitis B carrier. And if this patient is going to receive uh, immunomodulatory therapy, uh, they may need to be on antiviral therapy. Right. So uh, the patient was reluctant. She refused and stayed on sulfasalazine hydroxychloroquine and did not have a, did not have a good result uh, as far as managing her RA. So uh, the guidelines have been pretty well established uh, by the American Association of Society of Liver Diseases. Every several years, they update their recommendations. And, you know, clearly for someone with uh, hepatitis B surface antigen positive and core antibody, if they're going to go on targeted synthetic DMARDs or biologics, they need to be on antiviral therapy. If they're core antibody positive with those types of therapies, you can generally monitor the patient, check their hepatitis B viral DNA, check their LFTs frequently every three to six months. Uh, but if rituxan is being used, which is one of the drugs that we use frequently these days for vasculitis as well as RA, uh, even if they're just core antibody positive, then they should be on antiviral therapy. And then they need to be on antiviral therapy for a year after you discontinue the rituxan uh, as well. So again, uh, the uh, ACR pharmacologic recommendations to be presented later today, uh, this will also be addressed again. So the rituxan's an issue, interesting issue. Uh, there certainly the, the history of rituxan, you did all the clinical trials developing rituxan, is that viral reactivation is a real possibility with that drug. Um, but when I looked at this last, um, patients who are core antibody, first off, hep B surface antigen positive, they don't go on any of our drugs unless they're on antiviral, too high a risk of reactivation, which is what, you know, the guidelines that you pointed out said, but core antibody positivity, meaning they have a resolved infection, um, but they're B surface antigen negative. There's a lot of leniency there, but you're saying with rituxan, no, are there actually case reports of reactivation in those people when rituxan is used? Yes, and I think it's really more in the hematological literature. So, it, it, you know, and there are multiple therapies. So it is, it's, it's unlikely. And the other thing we commonly face in clinic, Jack, is we'll have these false positive hepatitis B core antibodies. People have never had any history of having hepatitis B. Right. That occurs. It's less likely than it was in the past. But so I think you just have to be diligent. You know, with a lot of the, the information we use in rheumatology was taken from uh, oncology, hematology. So you just want to be uh, careful in those people. And the, 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 big, the biggest uh, surprise was this uh, uh, paper that, uh, from the RISE registry, which showed how little screening was done. And I was shocked in some of the questions we got in the polling is, 
do I need to screen for hepatitis B before I go on biologic therapy? And I was right. Lord, what do you what do you mean? That's what we do in every patient before we do methotrexate. Uh, we check hepatitis B serologies. Yeah. So again, the and you're right. There, there are a lot of studies that have shown that before too that we're not as good as we should be at that. And so everyone check your Hep B, Hep C before you start any of these drugs. Um, but again, the battleground, the one that I think needs more clarification is uh, either uh, where there's drug specific risk. Most of our drugs, not so much of a risk um, when you're B surface antigen negative, core antibody positive, but Correct. but the literature does show a two percent chance of of reactivation of those people. So you got to watch them, right? You got to watch them, and also the other problem is you know with the, if you go off the therapies, you could have this immune reconstitution syndrome where you're no longer suppressing the immune system, and then there's viral DNA around, you get uh, a fulminant hepatitis. And that's, uh, and I've had one case of that in my 42 years of doing this. So what are your, there, there are I think two issues I want to end with. One is what are your guidelines for referral to the hepatologist for further evaluation and management? Well, it depends on how conservative you are. I mean, you know, certainly we have recommendations for us, but I, I, I'm very liberal in my, my referrals. I, I feel comfortable having someone looking over my shoulder who's a hepatologist who spends a lot of time doing this. And, and sometimes they'll be your real partner and they'll assist you and they'll have the patient come back and they'll do the monitoring for you. Sometimes they won't. So, you know, again, uh, I think that uh, bringing another set of eyes to take a look at the situation is always helpful. If someone's core antibody positive uh, and I'd like them to really drill down and, and do uh, other serologies, which I normally don't do, like hepatitis B, E antigen, antibody, things of that nature to help better define uh, what's going on. So there are two new classes. Uh, obviously, all our drugs can cause liver enzymes and whatnot. Two newer classes in the last uh, newer <laughs> last twenty years, the the IL six inhibitors and the JAK inhibitors, where uh, liver enzymes are sometimes an issue. Um, what's your take on that? Especially, you know, the JAKs now. Uh, is that much of a of a concern? Well, first of all, as far as have the issue with JAKs, all those patients were excluded from clinical trials, so we don't really have any data. But as far as the liver itself, I, I don't think the JAKs are a major issue, certainly in monotherapy. Most of the LFT elevation with the JAK inhibitors is in combination with methotrexate. So now, having said that, if I have someone who has um, chronic liver disease, um, drugs that inhibit IL-6 may not be my first choice, since IL-6 is somewhat homeostatic for liver cell integrity. Um, so if I had alternatives, I would go to alternative therapies. Excellent. All right, so end with what are you looking forward to seeing on the last day here at ACR? Well, uh, I'm part of the pharmacologic recommendations, the update. I uh, did a little, uh, you know, five minute to how you would use these in the clinic. So I'm looking forward to see uh, the presentation and how they're going to be received. Warmly, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Stan, thank you for your time. As always, you're very helpful. Thank you, Jack. Hi, I'm David Liu, rheumatologist in Melbourne, Australia, reporting for Room Now for ACR 2020. Just want to tell you a little bit about one of the really interesting abstracts uh, from the plenary session um, about interstitial lung disease and pregnancy, in particular, rheumatoid interstitial lung disease, secondary to rheumatic disease. Some really interesting data from Duke, uh, from, from Megan Klaus's group. And it really gets to this question about what to do with these patients especially when we know that the diseases that cause interstitial lung disease often affect women of childbearing age, women 
often want to have children, but we've always been taught that interstitial lung disease and pregnancy are bad. We know that there are pulmonary changes which can be problematic and the oxygenation can get, can get compromised, but there are circulatory changes as well, and patients with ILD can decompensate really quickly. So the paradigm's always been when you're talking to an ILD patient um, about pregnancy that you should really talk about considering do they actually want to get pregnant and there have always been questions about maybe even we should be considering elective terminations for some people so it's all quite extreme and we, we really lacked real world data so me class's group um, have described the biggest uh the biggest cohort so far to date um, and they've narrowed it down to the rheumatic disease patients and they've got 94 babies in that in that cohort What's really interesting out of that is looking at the pregnancy, the fetal outcomes and the maternal outcomes. So the fetal outcomes, uh, especially for severe interstitial lung disease, not so good, really. We saw lots of complications in that severe um, ILD group um, for interspirus and lots of um, fetal loss, in fact. Um, in, that very, in the seven patients from the severe ILD um, side of things, Four of them, unfortunately, uh, were non-live births and there were complications uh, right throughout. What was interesting though, that was that the maternal outcomes were really good. No deaths, no real complications, only one ICU stain in someone with mild IOD and that was from asthma flare. And so it really speaks to this idea that actually perhaps there's not an enormous amount that, that's gonna be lost from trying um, to get pregnant or go ahead with pregnancy that these women actually are safe within themselves and really the risk is, is a fetal risk. So I think that's really changed the way I think um, and I think that's changed the way a lot of people think. So for that, plenty more on pregnancy in, in rheumatic diseases and all of what's happening at ACI 2020, go along to roomnow.com for our ACI 20 coverage. Hi everyone, uh, coming to you live on Room Now from ACR Convergence 2020. I uh, hope everyone's having a, a good virtual conference so far. Um, there continues to be a plethora of spinal arthritis abstracts. Uh, I wanted to share uh, and discuss an important but sometimes forgotten population, uh, which is our female patients with axial spinal arthritis. Um, there were many inter interesting abstracts, uh, but I wanted to also focus on a very important topic uh, for our young female patients uh, with AXPA, and that's pregnancy and uh, pregnancy outcomes. Um, so the first abstract is abstract 1498, and that was actually an oral presentation uh, by Dr. Maigner. Um, and this actually involved four prospective cohort studies in Europe. Um, and they looked at pregnancy outcomes and health of children uh, and, and women with AXPA. Uh, they looked at over uh, 300, uh, they looked at 328 pregnancies, um, and they actually had some favorable outcomes of the pregnancies. 3% uh, had uh, preeclampsia, 6 to 9% had gestational diabetes, and preterm birth rates were, uh, ranged between 0 to 5%. And that was actually pretty similar to the uh, WHO general population rate of 9% in Europe. Uh, the next abstract is 1323, and that was a systematic review and meta-analysis. Uh, reviewed over 18 studies with over 3,000 women um, analyzed 
Um, there was an increase in both preeclampsia with an odds ratio of 1.3 and an increase in intrauterine growth restriction with an odds ratio of 1.17. Um, there is also a statistically significant increase in C-sections with nods ratio of 1.85, which I don't think is, you know, highly irregular. Um, and there was actually a disease activity variation uh, with actually 48% uh, reporting increased disease activity during pregnancy. Um, unfortunately, there was not much data on medication use in pregnancy in this meta-analysis. Um, I think it's interesting because we tend to think uh, our patients with inflammatory arthritis uh, have an improvement uh, of symptoms during pregnancy, uh, but this review showed that almost 50% had increased disease activity. And the last abstract is abstract 1324, and this was a, another prospective study looking for adverse pregnancy outcomes in two European centers. Uh, this included patients with psoriatic arthritis, AXPA, and undifferentiated spondyloarthritis. The most common uh, adverse outcomes was uh, small for gestational age. Um, they did note that inflammatory bowel uh, symptoms and aggressive disease phenotype, which they classified as requiring two or more uh, either conventional or biologic DMARDs um, and active disease before or during pregnancy uh, increased the risk for adverse outcomes. Uh, however, they didn't find any difference in age or use of steroids. Um, overall, I think it's you know, been really nice to see an abundance of data on pregnancy outcomes this year, especially focusing on AXPA, um, especially so much uh, prospective data because uh, most studies thus far have been uh, better, very heterogeneous and retrospective. I think a, a few things we can take away is one, I, I believe the old adage still maintains, which is healthy mom, healthy baby. Uh, number two, uh, in the prospective data, uh, we're seeing a lot of positive signs in terms of adverse uh, pregnancy outcomes in our female patients with AXPA. And lastly, I think we just need to continue to build more registries and obtain uh, uh, more prospective data, especially given the use and the introduction of newer biologics in this population. Um, so thank you for tuning in. I hope you continue to follow Room Now for the latest coverage of ACR Convergence 2020. Uh, again, this is Dr. Robert Chow and uh, follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, Michael Pillinger here for Room Now, discussing crystal disease reports at the 2020 ACR Convergence meeting. So up till now, I've been discussing research presentations about gout. But today I'd like to tell you about a really terrific state-of-the-art talk that I saw on calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease. The talk was given by Dr. Ann Rosenthal, the Chief of Rheumatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and one of the great important contributors to the science of this disease. Dr. Rosenthal divided her talk into three sections. First was clinical picture, the second was pathogenesis, and the third was treatment. In the clinical picture part, she discussed the evolving nomenclature of the disease, uh, the risk factors and triggers, including a possible entanglement that I didn't know about between osteoporosis and CPPD, uh, and the increasing use of imaging, including ultrasound and CT being helpful, MRI not useful at the present time, although uh, stay tuned. She also talked about uh, a joint project of the ACR and ULAR for new classification criteria, I should say 
for classification criteria because we don't have any that I think would tremendously help advance the field. Most interesting, I think, though, was her discussion of pathophysiology. Dr. Rosenthal reminded us that the processes of inflammation induced by CPP crystals are quite similar to those we see and are increasingly understanding uh, in response to gout crystals. But where things di differ, of course, are in the crystals themselves, how they get there and how they form. Uh, urate and calcium crystals are very different. It turns out, interestingly, that cartilage has lots of factors that inhibit mineralization. And yet, in CPPD, deposition still occurs. Now, CPPD can be hereditary, sporadic with aging, secondary to metabolic diseases such as uh, magnesium um, abnormalities, and secondary to trauma. But the hereditary form, I think, has the most to teach us since two genes, one called CCAL1 and the other CCAL2, have been most strongly associated with CPPD and understanding what they do may be a key to understanding a lot of this condition. The CCAL2 gene encodes the protein named ANK, A-N-K-H-H for human and mice, it's just A-N-K. ANK is the transporter that moves ATP or pyrophosphate out of chondrocytes and into the extracellular fluid. And um, in some patients with CPPD, gain of function mutations in ANC therefore result in extracellular excess pyrophosphate, which can encounter calcium and form calcium pyrophosphate crystals. Uh, conversely, in experimental models, silencing ANC reduces pyrophosphate in the extracellular space. In contrast, the CCL1 gene turns out to encode osteoprotegerin, the competitive regulator of rank ligand that is well recognized in the osteoporosis field. And this may be an explanation for why osteoporosis and, um, and CPPD disease may be uh, linked in some way. So loss of function mutations lead to decreased osteoprotegerin expression and are associated with risk of CPPD. The biology here isn't complete, but it looks as though the loss of osteoprotegerin leads to increased numbers of osteoclasts and that some unidentified secretory product of the osteoclasts may then drive the chondrocytes to extrude ATP or pyrophosphate. And there you go, um, you begin to get the risk for crystallization. So these discoveries hold out promise for new treatments for CPPD disease, CPPD. For example, ANK inhibitors could reduce extracellular pyrophosphate and reduce CPPD risk. There are in fact are already examples of weak ANK inhibitors, including probenicid, that stand as proof of principle that ANK inhibition should be possible. And strategies to restore osteoprotegerin homeostasis could also be a potential strategy. So overall, we all know that CPPD is a slowly progressing disease. And honestly, there have been times when the science of CPPD has seemed to evolve equally slowly. But thanks to people like Dr. Rosenthal, progress is ongoing and progress is certain. Tune into Room Now for more reports on ACR convergence.
Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a reporter at Room Now. My Twitter handle is at Janet Burdope. I hope you're enjoying the ACR 2020 Convergence uh, meeting. Um, this is a neat abstract. It is number 1466. And it is data from the RISE registry, which is a large US registry. And the question here was, who has more comorbidities, which are now called multimorbidities? And they looked at patients with osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, um, looking at psoriatic arthritis and looking at gout. So the first thing to note was that osteoarthritis patients that at least were seeing rheumatologists had the least amount of comorbidities or multimorbidities. In RA, it was just edging out a few more uh, problems than psoriatic arthritis. And gout, surprisingly to me, had the most comorbidities or multimorbidities. So number one, gout has the most. Number two, they were a little bit different so that um, some comorbidities clustered more, say, with RA and some clustered more with PSA or with gout. And so what is the take home? When I see a patient with gout, I am aware from this meeting of elevated cardiovascular risk. So I think to take a full history and review of systems, even in the days of telemedicine, is important so that we can decrease their multimorbidity problems and help their gout in general. Hope you're enjoying uh, the virtual meeting. Talk to you and go to uh, at room now. Thank you. Bye.